Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Fred Barnes is here to talk about the fight brewing over a $30 billion bridge, tunnel, and train station project in New York. Donald Trump may not be too enthusiastic at the prospect of giving billions in federal dollars to a project championed by one of his prime antagonists, New York Senator Chuck Schumer. Fred Barnes will tell us all about it. And then Andy Ferguson will be here after his trip to San Francisco, where he visited a groovy assortment of celebrations marking the 50th anniversary of 1967's Summer of Love. Like, wow, man. All that coming up on the Confab. We get the Confab started by welcoming executive editor of the Weekly Standard, Fred Barnes, to the Confab studio. Fred, how's it going? It's going well, and I hope it's going to be going better. All right. Well, uh, what could be better than to be here at the Confab talking about... The Gateway Project. That's Ooh. your article in the Weekly Standard yeah. this week. What mm-hmm. is the Gateway Project? Well, it's probably not of great interest to people all over the country, but if you live in New the, Jersey and New York— The people who would York, be paying for it. <laughs> they'll be paying for it, yeah. The Gateway Project is to build a new tunnel under the Hudson River, make it easier for these wealthy commuters to go back and forth between Manhattan and northern New Jersey, to uh, refurbish and uh, renovate Penn Station, which is kind of a dump— in, uh, in Manhattan, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, and it, it's uh, nine projects, but the big ones are the tunnel and the station. You know, I think it would be well worth the, the federal dollar if they could actually rebuild Penn Station the way it was back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I don't think they've, they've put aside enough money for that. No, I don't think they did. Uh, you know, it is, so, it, it is so striking when you go to Grand Central Station, which is still extraordinarily beautiful and spacious, and then you go to Penn Station, and it's uh, very not spacious and dumpy. Yeah, it's like going in somebody's, you know, moldy basement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so, so this project, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a board. Oh. People are acting as though the, the project mm-hmm. is a done deal. There was all of this money that came promised from mm-hmm. the Obama administration, yeah. but but as you report, uh, nobody ever bothered to put it in writing. <laughs> you know, I really spent a lot of time on the reporting on this, mainly a, uh, in search of a document that would say uh, that these parties signed to this and, uh, you know, stamped uh, in some way or it had been uh, put into law or there'd been an executive order in which uh, all this money was promised to this project and, and so on. As it turns out, the project consisted of one thing, a press release in which in which this so-called agreement between New Jersey and New York officials and the federal government was was forged. I wish as I a matter could spend fact, they twenty-nine the billion dollars in a press release, <laughs> and it'll be more than that, as it turns out, because you know these they always remember they always, the big dig <laughs> in Boston. <laughs> well, look, I remember the big dig here, and when Metro was built, when I was a young reporter, I covered that. I think the original plan called for something under two billion dollars. It was over 10. And that was probably a bargain at that. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be a pretty good system for the first 25, 30 years. But then 
as in some of these other uh, transit systems, uh, when they don't do the maintenance uh, efficiently and on time, the system deteriorates. We particularly see that in the 100-year-old, 120-year-old system in New York City, where you fall there with an old old uh, infrastructure and, and you don't keep up with the maintenance. It can collapse in a hurry. So how does New York, even though Donald Trump is a New Yorker, mm-hmm. um, how does New York, with its heavily Democratic politician base, go to the Trump administration at this point and say, oh, by the way, we were hoping to get $29 billion. Uh, do <laughs> oh, you they'd have that say, handy? They say, hey, we're from New York. We're not just some uh, folks from uh, uh, someplace out in Iowa. Well, we're from New York. I mean, we're, I mean, this matters. This is not just flyover country stuff. This is New York. They really do come with that New York complex where, uh, look, if it happens here, it's uh, more important than if it happened elsewhere. That doesn't seem to be winning over Elaine Chow at the uh, Department of Transportation. <laughs> well, the leader of this effort, of course, uh, for this project is Chuck Schumer, uh, the uh, Senate Minority Leader, and he's from New York. Mr. Mr. Charm. <laughs> Mr. Charm. He made the mistake of uh, voting against the confirmation of Elaine Chow uh, for Transportation Secretary. And I, I thought I asked her husband, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, once and you know, what he thought of that. And I figured he'd laugh it off. He wasn't laughing at all. <laughs> he, he took it as a, a very uh, uh, ungracious thing uh, for Chuck Schumer to do. And, and as you say, she had been on the board of the mm-hmm. Gateway Project. Oh, they thought they had her. You see, because they had her on the board, <laughs> she was the person who, who would be on the spending end of all this money and on the receiving end of it as a board member at Gateway. They thought they'd locked her in, but she realized or somebody told her that, you know, there's a conflict of interest here. <laughs> so at this point, Schumer is uh, trying to play a little political hardball mm-hmm. on this. What's, what's he up to? Well, he's blocking three of these younger uh, officials uh, who've been nominated for top jobs at the Transportation Department. He's, they're holding up, holding up their nominations, or I should say holding up their confirmations. Uh, you know, it's a, it, it's a tactic you can use for a while. I don't think it's going to get him anywhere, but he— uh, uh, Not I, making more friends at DOT. He's not. You know, I, I think what he ought to pursue now is to go back and see if he can change his vote on, on Elaine Chow's confirmation. And, so, <laughs> so how do you get the commitment of $29 billion from the federal government before you've even done— the engineering surveys and or have a financial plan well the answer is you don't but you know somehow chuck schumer and the new york crowd and with help from their friends in new jersey thought that hey you know this is important this isn't just you know something that might involve kansas city <laughs> this is this is what's really important and uh, that really didn't persuade the folks in uh, in washington so far now they'll get some money they do need a tunnel eventually another tunnel under uh, under the Hudson River. Uh, they need it for the cars, and they need it for trains and so on. Uh, and they really is, do need to do something about Penn Station. Oh, Penn Station. Oh. Mm. You know, it's so nice. I, I, I've often thought it would be so much nicer to live in Connecticut, and I could take the train to work, and I'd get out every day in Grand Central Station. And instead, whenever I go to New York, I wind up in Penn Station. 
you know, there have been times when I've gone there with my children and my wife, and I've thought, is there some way we can take the train to New York without going to Penn Station? <laughs> and, and the answer is no. All right. Well, Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard on the Gateway Project. We'll have to come back and see what happens on this later on. Indeed. Thanks, Fred. You're welcome. Now the Confab welcomes Andy Ferguson, senior editor of the Weekly Standard, and just back from San Francisco. Boy, are my arms tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Henny Youngman jokes are from a previous era. <laughs> That's the true. era that uh, San Francisco is celebrating this year is the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love. Do you, I know you wore flowers in your hair when you were there, but um, you, you didn't bring any flowers with you. Not since my wedding. I haven't worn <laughs> So lots going on in San Francisco to celebrate the Summer of Love. You went to, there are actually museum exhibits about several, the Summer of Love. Several, actually, I think. Well, the public library itself, uh, the Central Public Library has, I think, four exhibits on the Summer of Love, and then a couple of their branch libraries have their own things honoring the Summer of Love. For example, they're giving free classes in tie-dye making and macrame and so on. But I, I thought kind of the whole point of the Summer of Love was you didn't need some institution, some authority teaching you <laughs> how to do tie-dye. That's right. I hadn't really thought about that. It doesn't seem to be bothering anybody there. They seem to, I mean, they've jumped into it with both feet. Um, kind of the irony, one of the things I note in the piece is this is clearly something, you know, got up by the San Francisco Tourist Bureau. Uh, and it's a, it's kind of a marketing thing. But the Summer of Love itself was a marketing thing. It was kind of a media creation. and um, it, But it is, it, it's a useful idea uh, because it kind of gives you a handle on what the whole hippie movement, the whole counterculture of the late 1960s was all about. What was it all about? Where did it come from? It seems that hippies just kind of appeared all of a sudden. Yeah, right. But it had been brewing. Yeah, there, there's, there's, you know, a lot, lot of writing about this. <laughs> Unfortunately, I <laughs> had to read a lot of it. But, um, well, a lot of people traced the hippie movement back to um, the Beatniks, who are also very prominent in San Francisco. Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder and Jack Kerouac was out there for quite a while. And uh, then into they, they kind of went away, and then into that vacuum, there was still all this kind of countercultural energy out there, this kind of rebellion against um, the middle-class American life of the 1950s and 1960s, and that took root in, in the hippie movement. It's, it's funny to me that, um, that the counterculture movement got going in San Francisco— 
it's really kind of like the one place where the counterculture could really survive uh, or rather oh, yeah. just for climatic reasons, which is if you're in Buffalo, New York, and you're trying to just like, you know, hang out and sleep where you where you lie down, <laughs> you're, you're not going to make it very long. Well, or, you'll have about six weeks where you can do <laughs> but that. But San Francisco, year-round, yeah. you, can, you yeah. can kind of live on the street if you want to. Yeah. You know, it, it's it, that's true, and there's something else about San Francisco, which, I, which is a city that I revere in many ways. Um, the, it, it's always been an, a city of transience and itinerance. It's, it's a great, was a great world port um, connected to Asia. And uh, even from the other side of the United States, people would come around the continent. And so it's always been bringing in new things and new people. And there's always kind of a, a slightly seedy edge to it, you know, kind of air of a little bit of criminality to it, um, but also a great openness to new things. And so it's it, San Francisco was the perfect place for it to happen. A lot of times there are these movements that people look back at 50 years later and say this this big thing happened. But other than, than revolutions, often the things that happen, people don't realize that they're happening at the time they're happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Summer of Love very much there was a notion that something was going on in San Francisco. People were coming from far and wide. How did how did the Summer of Love get going? Well, uh, partly it was a function of something new in American life or new, you know, over that 10 or 15 year period, which was mass media, which meant that everybody in America everywhere could find out about the very same thing at the very same instant. And that was really a tremendous revolution in the way people lived their lives. And so when word went out, you know, in about 1966, early 67, that there were a lot of really cool rock bands out in San Francisco and the weather was great and, um, you know, it's beautiful parks and it's a beautiful city and there was a lot of dope and people could really go out there and live the kind of free life that they dreamed of living free of all the constraints of bourgeois America. Um, the word went out real fast, and by the spring and uh, late spring of 67, a lot of people had moved to San Francisco, a lot of young people, a lot of runaways. And then when the schools actually let out in June across America, then the, then the trickle of people became a flood. And what were they all doing when they got there? <laughs> Not a, not a lot, actually. I mean, there there wasn't a lot of uh, gainful employment going on. It was a party, you know. I mean, it, they came for a party, I guess I should say. The party didn't actually turn out the way everybody wanted it to, but it had been a party for a while. Um, but by the time so many people had come out there, um, it was really a strain on social services, and, and, uh, and things went south pretty fast. But before that, you know, it had been... Uh, the original hippies, who by and large, I think it's understood, were children of the middle, upper middle class or upper classes. They were people who were fairly resourceful themselves, and they went into this kind of new mode of being with, you know, smoking pot all the time and having lots of sex and partying and taking great drugs and all this. Um, gentle people. Yeah, the gentle the people <laughs> from everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> um, the, the people who kind of followed those people. Um, were from different backgrounds, didn't quite have the same resources uh, to fall back on. And when that happened, um, 
I think the inevitable happened, which is that, it, as I say, it all went south very fast. Well, and you detail in, in your cover story for the Weekly Standard how if you've got a lot of people who don't actually have resources, who are sort of just living and being, that inevitably they have to start stealing stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, the, one of the uh, big parts of the piece is to talk about the diggers, who are also feature very prominently in all the discussions of the Summer of Love this this year in San Francisco. The diggers were a sort of an itinerant group of um, crypto-anarchists, I guess you could say, who decided they wanted, in Haight-Ashbury District, where all this was taking place, uh, they wanted to start a new economy, a free economy, they called it, in which everything would be free and there would be no need for money because money was the great manipulator of people. and It's how the, the power structure kept in itself in power. So if you got rid of money, then everybody would be free. And, of course... Now we kind of look back on it and say, Jesus, did anybody really ever believe that? But they did. They did believe it, and they they tried to make a go of it. Um, But, you know, it turns out that to have a free economy, you need money. Even if you're getting rid of money, it takes money to get rid of money. And uh, and there was a lot of um, not only sex, but exploitation and sexploitation. Yeah. Yeah, this is something that's that even now doesn't get talked about very much. Um, one of the things, one of the traditional arrangements that the Summer of Love did not attack was the traditional relationship between men and women, uh, the middle-class relationship that sort of obtained from cavemen to madmen, um, where, you know, it's sort of me, Tarzan, you, Jane. And in all the communes and the group houses and stuff, women were expected to be doing the cooking and the cleaning and the shopping, and the men would go out and do what men do, preening in front of each other, I guess, and trying to get other women. Um, but it was it was a, it was relied very heavily on the exploitation of other people. Although one of the things that you seem to to like in in the article is uh, is also related to women having a somewhat traditional role, <laughs> which is the clothes of the period. Um, at least the the museum pieces you find are really spectacular artifacts. Yeah. And they rely very heavily on the fact that all of these new, free, hip, and with it young women had gone to sewing class at, <laughs> right. at, at junior high and high school, right. home ec, or their right. mother or grandmother had taught them how to sew. Yeah, yeah. It is funny. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it till I was out there and was talking to people, but it's one of the ironies of the, the great sexually liberated Baby boom was the last generation in which girls were expected to know how to sew. And so as a result, um, some of the clothes were just spectacular. And there, there's a, the best of the exhibits, or the most entertaining of the exhibits in San Francisco, is at the, the Young Museum. Of, it's an art museum there in Golden Gate Park. And it, it shows the clothes, and the clothes are just magnificent. I mean, they, they would take almost nothing and turn it into an object that was sort of exotic and beautiful and creative, imaginative. Um, there was a lot of very good kind of creative energy released at that time. And um, even though people who are, look back on it with a jaundiced eye, as I do, I uh, should acknowledge that, that there was a lot of beautiful things that came from that period. To me, one of the most beautiful things that comes out of that is just the poster art of the period, which yeah. is something uh, old and new all at the same time. These, you know, sort of letter forms taken from French fin de siècle uh, yeah. style yeah. Uh, combined with Victorian 
uh, cowboy lettering and uh, all done with um, day glow, psychedelic, magenta, and tangerine yeah. colors right. vibrating right. against one another. Right. Um, it, it's designed to be looked at while you're stoned, but it can be appreciated by even those of, those us. of us who aren't. <laughs> who are no longer. St- um, yeah, it, it, they're, they're spectacular. And, um, you know, you mentioned Dayglow. One of the interesting things about these posters, and you described them exactly right, they, they kind of vibrate with the colors, the intensity of the colors, is there's only one in the whole exhibit at the De Young, only one poster used Dayglow or, or Dayglow paint. Everything else was ingeniously manipulated through offset printing to make it look like it was neon or day glow. In fact, these guys were just using paint and regular spot uh, colors, but the choice of colors against one another. That right, uh, and the combinations of them and the way they did the they ran the presses um, had this just spectacular, original, imaginative result. So you have a lot of people looking at um, at art and listening to music that is accentuated by taking illegal drugs and mind-altering drugs and really um, thinking that things are recreational that are particularly dangerous. I mean, you know, think about all of the heroin and, uh, in particular, the LSD that people were using, you know, a drug that um, kind of unhinges the... Mm-hmm the mind, which is a, a scary thing to be engaged in, but was thought to be not only good fun, but uh, but life-enhancing. Right, yeah. It was, you know, it wasn't just a way to get high, and in fact, it is not just a way to get high. It's a very powerful, strange drug, um, but uh, people were pretending that it was some kind of opening into a new form of consciousness or new spiritual realms and so on. There was a lot of gassy talk like that. Um, to sort of justify the party. Um, Oddly enough, there's sort of a Puritan streak in the counterculture, uh, which meant to be so liberated, but it was that they they didn't want to think that all of the partying and getting high and sitting around listening to music and all the sex and all that stuff was just self-indulgence it had to they had to find a kind of larger theoretical framework to explain why it was that they were <laughs> you know having sex four times a day and and uh, smoking a lot of weed and stuff like that um, so that's where all this talk about so new it's the realms same of consciousness that brought us the shakers <laughs> yes right <laughs> the natural thing that happens when you have a lot of people taking a lot of drugs is you have a lot of people who are either ODing or otherwise incapacitated on the street. And you tell a fantastic story about how one of the fathers of the Summer of Love um, came to San Francisco to witness what he had had a hand in creating and was not pleased. Yeah, uh, one of the iconic images from the Summer of Love in San Francisco in 1967 is of a stroll that uh, George Harrison of the Beatles took with his wife through uh, Haight-Ashbury and Golden Gate Park. And you find these pictures everywhere. He's Somebody handed him a guitar, so he was strumming a guitar and surrounded by flower children, as they were called. And, um, and The it, soundtrack for the, sound, for the Summer of Love, of course, being Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Which, which had, had just come, come out, out yeah, yeah, just a few weeks earlier. And so this was sort of taken as, you know, the Beatles anointing the summer of love, you know, sort of a laying on of hands, like, isn't this great? This is exactly what... But in fact, l- later on, um, 
in many different interviews, uh, Harrison said that he, when he went out there, and he only stayed there for about three hours because he got scared, um, but he was appalled. He said it was it was like the Bowery. It was just skid row and a lot of very, very young kids strung out on drugs. And he even said that his few hours in, in uh, the Haight-Ashbury um, were the things that put him off drugs altogether, because the whole drug culture, because he saw where it was leading. George Harrison, the smart beetle. <laughs> that gives a sense of where the, everything was headed with the summer of love, not, not even that far into the summer. How did it come to an end? Well, I guess, you know, the historians all differ about when it started and when it ended, and um, but everybody points to at least one uh, event, which is in the fall of 1967, after the Haight-Ashbury had been flooded with new arrivals, and the older veteran hippies who'd been there were kind of thinking like, ah, these aren't our kind of people, and they were sort of leaving, going to Marin County in beautiful places where you wouldn't have to step on a syringe when you got up in the morning. Um, and so they had a death of a hippie, a, a funeral for the last hippie, and they carried a, a big um, casket down Haight Street, took it into the park on what was known as Hippie Hill, where lots of hippies used to gather and uh, set it ablaze. And this was supposed to be a symbolic act that... There was the, no actual hippie in the <laughs> casket. No one knows. <laughs> um, but this was a symbolic act to say that the media had ruined it, uh, that it had become commercialized, that it wasn't the ideal that they had hoped for, and so on. So that's kind of an official uh, coda to the, whole, uh, to the whole business of the Summer of Love. But the summer of love lives on. It has impacts for how we have lived ever since and how we live today. Yeah. Yeah, basically everything that's kind of nice today in American life, the surviving hippies like to take credit for. You know, the quality of American food is much better than it was. Um, the, the wonderful, magical things that come out of Silicon Valley, they take, they take credit for that. They take credit for new forms of work and all those sorts of um, liberating things and, and enjoyable things that have come about in American life, uh, they want to take credit for. I think that's kind of specious, but, you know, let them do it if they want. What about the uh, not-so-wonderful things? Well, they don't seem to want to deal with that. And this is one of the things that really got me uh, kind of mad in studying all this was no one involved in the summer of love and nobody writing about it now wants to face up to what I think is the obvious fact, which is that there was something inherently screwy about the whole project, that when you try and question every traditional assumption that people live by, you know, monogamy, um, honesty, uh, all, all of the, the sorts of things that keep civilization civilized, when you question all those things, things fall apart. The center doesn't hold, and um, bad things come as a result of that. Instead, what the historians are saying is that, well, what really happened was the LSD got really bad, and so people had bad trips, oh, and then they started and then they started taking heroin. It was quality control. And then they say, and this is honest to God, people are serious about this, they say, well, where did the heroin come from? And the general answer seems to be the CIA, and the CIA was using uh, sort of conduits set up by the mafia to 
shove drugs into the Haight-Ashbury where all these innocent uh, childlike creatures took it and then fell apart. Which is, I mean, it's just crazy, but it's, it's part of the whole self-justification that goes on when people talk about the summer of love. But I guess if you're going to strive to return in some way to a state of nature, um, it depends whether your vision of the state of nature is is Rousseauian or Hobbesian. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And I think we kind of know which it is. <laughs> it is. It, it's. Um, it becomes uh, a time of great selfishness and self indulgence and and a lack of uh, fellow feeling. Andy Ferguson, one of the gentle people. Back from San Francisco, <laughs> revisiting the summer of love. Thanks for telling us about it on the Confab. Thank you, Eric. All across the nation, such a strange vibration. People in motion. That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription. Or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.